All right, welcome back. I have another photographer this week, a friend of mine, Simbarash Cha, and I'm uh, really glad to have you on. We're we're actually friends in real life, which is fun. Sometimes it's just internet people, but um, every time in New York, we try to have a coffee and catch up. How's it going? Doing really well, man. How are you doing? I am also doing really well. Anyway, thanks for coming on. Uh, One thing that I, I like is that I know because of conversations that we've had that you listen to the show sometimes, which I appreciate because now you have some context of things that have been talked about here. I take exception to sometimes. I listen to all the episodes. Oh, thanks, man. (laughs) Let's let's introduce you a little bit. I respect the work that you do a lot. You do really great photography. We met at a London Fashion Week uh, quite a while ago now, just very randomly. You were taking photos and I think I think I was off somewhere else and Anya met you because you were with the other photographers. Then we went to the next show together and then we like hung out for a few hours and we we're like, hey, let's let's stay in touch. And then we did. We totally did. That was back in 2014. Basically. So it's forever. been a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the world's changed since then. So much. And to introduce you to everybody listening, I mean, for one thing, I encourage everybody to go to the show notes and click on your Instagram profile. It's I mean, it's a relatively challenging name to spell, so I would try to click it instead of just saying all the letters out loud. It'll make it easier. But you have um, incredible work. I mean, really fantastic. I think a, a good way to introduce what you do might be to tell me about, like, what's a recent project you've done that you like and and how did you execute it? Sure. Um, so right now, uh, fashion season is ramping up. Uh, the major fashion week seasons uh, run the month of September and February. And so for the past three seasons, I've been doing work for Saks on Fifth Avenue, which is like a really big, one of the biggest uh, luxury retail stores uh, in the world, really. And um, I'm doing a series of uh, video campaigns for them for IGTV. And every season we do something just a little bit different, but for the most part, uh, I will shoot, cut, edit the entire campaign and which each passing seasons, they give me just a little bit more leeway and creative freedom. So it's been a really good partnership. Uh, I'm excited about it. It sounds like a really big job. And also, I mean, for a really big brand, like that's fantastic to work for sex because that's stuff that just gets seen in the world. You know, random people shopping at the sex in their town might... Uh, run into it so yeah as a matter of fact um my partner and i we did this thing last season we did a 10 episode segment and man we probably worked you warned me there was going to be noise outside so anybody listening yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that's new york for you <laughs> the dangers of new podcasting from new york harlem uh, yeah we we worked probably around the clock uh six days a week for five weeks just to kick out that 10 episode series so sometimes it gets really crazy wow that's cool okay well hopefully by now we've given people time to go and and look at your work there's a lot going on usually we don't really do news on this show but there's just there's so much happening that i I feel like we can't ignore all of it um coming up soon is a hardware season for apple the event is announced not much to say about it yet, I guess, until it happens, but it is very much on my mind. I'll try to get a podcast out right away after the announcements. I don't know if I'll do a YouTube video immediately. New iPhones, obviously very exciting. Mac Pro details, I hope, and the new Pro Display as well. What are you excited about? I'm excited about this the OS coming out of beta because uh, I really want to use 
my iPad for a, the extended screen. Yeah. I cannot wait. Sidecar, cannot wait. it could be a really big deal. It's funny because it's kind of a simple feature and um, something that uh, there were some uh, third-party applications that allowed you to do this before. I've had Duet installed for a long time. Okay. But there's just kind of one level of it not working totally seamlessly um, that would keep me from doing it. And I feel like once it's really integrated into the OS, uh, it's suddenly going to become a lot more useful. So I I agree that I am also very excited about Sidecar. Yeah, I do a lot of in in post. I don't do a lot of post production except for color. I, I, I like it's just kind of one of my passions, color science. Mm-hmm. And so I already have an extended uh, monitor for my MacBook, but to be able to have that third screen. So like if I'm using DaVinci Resolve and I can just throw like my scopes onto my iPad extended like with Sidecard, like I think that would just be really sort of open up some flexibility and freedom so I can breathe and be able to see what it is that I'm actually adjusting and editing just a little bit better. Absolutely. Wait, will we be able to do, could you use the iPad as a reference monitor? with the way that DaVinci works? Because I feel like they always slightly hamper the way you can move windows around. Can I see my, can I do all my grading on my laptop and then like see the image on the iPad? Do you think that's possible? Yeah, but I, okay. So <laughs> here's where we might run into like one of our philosophical differences. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm a stickler of like, like if grading is important, like there's one, there's one thing if I'm going to like make something for a quick, like I'm just going to throw this up on Instagram and it's cool and I can just do like a quick job like grade. But like if I'm delivering something for like a commercial client, I need to have calibration on my monitor and some sort of bypass to make sure that like the color that I'm seeing is the actual color. So right. you've told me about this. Yeah, I wouldn't use, I personally wouldn't use the iPad for that, but I hope that like you at least have that capability to be able to do things in a pinch. Or, Although... Is there yes. any reason we won't be able to calibrate the iPad by setting a profile in macOS? I feel like that should totally work. Like the way that you would use any external monitor that you just say, this is another output source. I mean, I haven't seen how it works in the, uh, like I'm not running the beta, so I haven't tried it. But if it appears as an external display the way that a monitor does, we might be able to apply a calibration profile to it. I realize that's not what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Like you, you run it through a black magic box. You do something one step further. Yes. Uh, you're probably going to be the first one to pre-order one of those uh, Pro Display XDRs. But <laughs> are you? Not yet. Not yet. No, not yet. Not yet. Um, or you're saying so if if Sidecar would allow you to be able to pass like a video feed without the interference of the GUI, like, yeah, sure. I said GUI. Sorry, it's a habit. (laughs) (laughs) G-U-I. It's old habit. Yeah, but Um, if it does that, that'd be cool. I think it could work. No, I would be interested in that. That would be interesting. I'd probably sit back and wait for like all of the true pros to do all of their metrics testing and stuff like that. But I mean, I wouldn't be against it for any sure. Well, and for the record, I'm much lazier with my color calibration. <laughs> I just want it to look similar on every monitor I can possibly check it on. And then I move on with my life and color the next thing, which is not not ideal and has led to problems. But um I yeah I don't know that that's too deep of a conversation. We'll save that for another time. How to really manage color in an effective way because it is honestly very challenging. It is way more challenging than I think most of us who get into it realize, even when we're told in advance. Yeah, even when you buy the right calibration tools and you go through all the steps that 
I go through all the steps of the walkthroughs that I find online of like, here's how to manage your color between monitors, right? So I've, I've watched the tutorials. I've seen everybody explain what I'm supposed to do. I go do all those things. And then I just look at the results and I'm like, yeah, but everything's still different. So obviously this tutorial, none of these mainstream tutorials really take everything into account when, and I've done this many times with different calibration tools, um, different monitors. There are, there are missing elements that are a little bit deeper. But, uh, Before we pivot away from color, can I just say mm-hmm. something? Because I don't think we talked about this offline, and it just kind of blew me away this week. You shoot Canon and Sony uh, for digital. I have only shot Sony my entire career. Um, wow, always going back to the A-series? Yeah, I started on the A65 oh, crop crazy. in 2011 and have gotten all the models coming up. <laughs> um just so I just started this project with Sax, as you know, and um, because uh, this season, when I start my travels, I've got two weddings uh, in the middle of it, and I shoot, I do photo weddings on on analog film, so that means I have to take two sets of cameras when I travel. And even though my A7 III is pretty small and light and compact, as you know, the Zeiss lenses are not mm-hmm. very true. And, and so I'm trying to figure out a way to save ounces so I could carry less weight. And I did some research and settled on trying out the X-T3s, Fujifilms. And can I just tell you that it was the fastest post-finish I have ever done. Wow, because of the color? Because of the color, the color science mainly. The F-log that comes out of the Fuji is just really clean when you... When you expose it properly, I mean, I still have to transcode everything over to ProRes. Yeah, okay. But once I started actually working with the files uh, in 4K, it was super fast. I did maybe two passes of color, sent it to my client as a test, and they were like, this looks amazing. And I was like, yeah, it kind of does look amazing. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's the reputation Fuji has. But as someone who hasn't been using it for a while, it's interesting to hear that you found it to be exactly like that. It's blown me away. And I mean, I've only been using it for a week. I'll have, I have two of them. I'll have them for one more week. I don't know if it's enough to get me to turn in all of my Zeiss lenses, but let me tell you, like, just as far as like a video filming experience, the fact that the cameras have, they shoot in 60, 4K 60, um, which I None of the Sonys do. Yeah, it's not very common in general. A lot of cameras yeah. do not do that. It's been lovely. It's been really easy, really lovely, really easy to set up. And uh, I just feel like even on set, just getting them to go the way that I want has been a much quicker process than getting things right with my Sony. So I just wanted to throw that out. And what do you think it would take for you to switch? I mean, there's no full frame in that range, right? For food. Correct. Correct. So what, could you make it work? So I've got two A7R bodies and one A7 III body. And as of right now, after just using the cameras for a week, I mean, it's enough for me, to make me at least consider turning in my A7R IIs. Because, I mean, if I need the resolution for photo, that's what I have my, my film cameras for. I, can just, I just shoot on film anyway for right. most of my clients. So I don't really need that extra resolving power and... Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it. How often do you actually shoot film? I've, that's what you, You've mentioned it a bit, but in reality, how often are you shooting film versus digital? 
as far as photos is concerned, uh, over the course of, let's say, all my jobs for the year, at least between 70-80% film. Wow, that is not very common yeah. these days. Not a lot of people are shooting that much film. That's cool. I mean, I would love, I'd love to shoot that much film. It sounds fun. <laughs> I only shoot digital when the job is like an event, something that like the client needs the images like that night or the next morning. But if they need it any time beyond that, like I, I just shoot on film. Right. Man, that's yeah. awesome. Well, okay. We're still going to talk about a bit more digital, but oh, Let's do it. you know, what? actually one more thing is the, the pro display XDR. Do you have thoughts on it? You, if anybody's excited about it, it, you are the kind of person to be excited. I, I am really excited, even though I'm not going to buy one. Um, do you, do you have an opinion? I don't have an opinion yet. Now, okay, because okay, yeah. here's the main it's, it's, thing. Let me put it. Let me, yeah, let me put go it. Go this. first. Go first. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that it's not on my shopping list yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, well, okay, but the reason for everybody to be really excited, ignore the price tag right now. It is crazy expensive, but that's what everything is when a new technology comes out, uh, and it is still. You know, let's keep in mind, much less expensive than other reference monitors. What is exciting is this is what normal price monitors are going to be in less time than you think. I mean, I, I'm guessing less than five years, we will be able to all start affording these. So it's one thing to keep in mind if you are going to invest in one now is you need to be able to put it to use today. I bet that this higher, like really high knit, great color accuracy HDR display is going to become something that we can all afford relatively soon. And the price on this first generation will drop and things are going to change. But for anybody that needs it now, I mean, it's it's a pretty cool toy. Let me ask you a question. Outside of post-production houses, like who else needs this monitor? Well, that's who needs it. I mean, it's not, it's not a normal person thing. Like you could, okay, here's, here's actually a question that uh, I'll ask back to you and probably neither of us have the answer for. Here's something I don't get. What is the main reason to spend a lot of time mastering to HDR right now when the level of HDR that we can actually see is so much less. So if you own an HDR TV at home, I think it's probably outputting to about 500 nits, whereas a traditional TV, like a CRT TV, is 100. That's what we've been using for a long time. So that is a big jump, right? That sounds huge. It's like five times, although it is logarithmic, so it's not actually five times. Um, And now these XDR displays output to 1,000 nits, right? So they're much, much brighter. That's all great. But if you're mastering to something that's, let's just say it's twice as bright as what everybody's TVs are, I don't know why. Like, what is the, why aren't we, if we had an old standard of everything being 100, why aren't we moving to a new standard where everything is 500 or 1,000 or whatever? And if you master to something above that, what happens when it's seen on something less than that? I I don't know. Do you have an answer to that or no? Well, I don't have an answer to that, but I can sort of piggyback. There's a thing that we do when we're mastering, when specifically if we're doing actual color mastering, where where I know for most consumers, the practice is to turn the brightness on your, your laptop all the way up, right? So you can see everything. But usually... When we're using reference monitors to do color, we turn the brightness down like like 100 nits, 120 is usually the max. A lot of people even go lower than that to like 80 nits. Um, it's 
it's a lot of work on the eyes to try to master at a higher brightness point than than 100 nits. And I'm sure Apple has thought of this. Obviously, I'm. I just I have to see it to 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 really understand like why it is that I would need like some specs like that. And that's part of what I'm excited about is that now it's going to be on a lot more people's desks. It'll be part of our workflow soon. You know, it's not here yet. It's coming. That's what's exciting. I mean, it looks it looks attractive. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, okay, well, there'll be lots more Apple stuff coming up soon. Uh, I think rumors are boring to talk about, so we'll we'll wait till there's something real. How about new cameras? There are a lot of new cameras that are real and all got announced at the same time. So uh, yep. I definitely don't cover every camera announcement here, but there are just so many at once. And they are going to be really... Th- these cameras sell a lot. Like These are some of the important cameras out there that I know a lot of people listening will be interested in buying. So um, not having tried any of them, either of us, let's at least go over what got announced and, and maybe some thoughts on uh, how important this will be and which ones which ones we would want. Uh, starting with Sony A6600. This is an update for the A6500, which it's funny because it, it sort of sat alongside the A6400. The naming yes. has gotten out of control. It is not easy to understand what's what. But we do know now that the 6600 is the flagship. It was a little less clear between 65 and the 64, I think, because it took away IBIS and like there's a few changes like that. But I, I do believe that the A6600 is really meant to be the flagship crop sensor, or sorry, uh, you know, APS-C size sensor um, for Sony now. And um, I don't know, what do you think of it when you saw it announced? So I came to the A6000 series like pretty late. I've never owned one, and up until maybe two years ago, just always just thought it was like the little baby Sony that videographers who couldn't invest in bigger gear would bring to usually for people on smaller budgets that's what i just assumed that the camera was good for sure and but but having seen some recent work uh especially in video i don't think i don't know if i've seen a lot of work on photo come off the camera but with video i'm really impressed like it looks really nice and when sony from what I understand, is starting to make a, a bigger investment in their non-Zeiss, non-G-Master line, which means lighter Sony-branded lenses. Uh, most of them, I guess, are going to be like in the 1.8 class. It seems like those lenses are specifically tailor-made to be paired with the A65, A6600s. I mean, if you can get away by just putting a few ounces on the gimbal, like that's amazing. The first time I noticed this was the A6400 having yes. basically the same image quality as the A7R2, which was what I was using uh, for in terms of video. Yes. Um, they, they could match. They maybe weren't exactly the same. I bet you could see the difference at really high ISOs, but that's not... That's not that important in in reality. Like that's I even on cameras that have really great low noise, I rarely go above sixteen hundred or thirty two hundred. Even though you can pretty safely go to sixty four hundred. Yes. Personally, I just don't shoot like that. If it's that dark, find more light. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, but I saw more and more people shooting with the A6400, A6500, and they are great options. They really do look as good as anything. They seem to be able to be matched to much more expensive cameras, and they are lighter weight. So, in a lot of the time, the biggest compromise you're making by selecting those cameras is the uh, sensor size. And that can often work, especially for gimbal work. Having a smaller sensor, giving you more depth of field, that can be great. You're not trying to necessarily get shallow depth of field with some of this stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, just overall, these have been incredibly versatile cameras. Um, I, I really like to see the, the whole lineup getting better and better. I hope they discontinue some of the old ones because it's way too confusing to tell people what to buy. Um, but uh, the, one other thing about the line in general, though, that I... I've been recommending both of these cameras for a while to average people that are like, I want to get a good camera that's not crazy expensive, but it's very, very good. And, um, you know, I'll be able to take good photos on it, but I don't really care that much about photography. I don't know, like average people wanting to step it up. I have found that some of those people have come back and be like, it's really hard to use or or didn't end up buying it because they're like, I just don't like the feeling of it. And I think Sony still has that as a really big issue across their whole lineup. It, it can feel not great to pick up for the first time, especially if you're not interested in spending the time to really get to know it. I think for non-tech-loving people, I could really imagine it being frustrating sometimes having to set up all of your, like, for example, custom buttons. I, I still think that's the wrong way to go, and I prefer that about canon and fuji and panasonic and everybody else basically is that the way the buttons are laid out that's just the way you use your camera whereas on sony everybody sets it up differently i've always seen that as a weakness so something to keep in mind if you're thinking about picking up one of these sony's they're not the most friendly things to actually use in practice they are definitely not the most friendly and i i'm really scared to like talk about fuji in a way that just makes me sound anti-sony because i I love my Sony cameras with a passion. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, I'm, you know. But you're the kind of person Fuji, that you're willing to put the homework in to really understand your camera. Yeah, I, I, I am. And I don't, I don't think that people who want to pick up like cameras and be serious about photography from jump, like you're talking about, should have to do that. I mean, I, they should just focus on, being good photographers, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But also, I don't know, man. Like, those Fuji 2.0 lenses are 350 bucks. Ooh, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. There's, nice. there's a lot to like yeah. in other other directions, even though... This, can I ask you one question here? Okay. We're talking about this. <laughs> and I know you've been, especially since you've gotten your C200, like, you've been really sort of openly mulling your your lineup do you find in on your side of the community that are you feeling that Sony users are grumbling more or less than let's say two years ago? I I would just say that I think Canon users grumble more because there is more okay. to s- complain about. So uh, not more. I feel like Sony keeps announcing new stuff so fast that and it so often has a long feature list that kind of keeps people excited. Whereas on the Canon side, things get announced more slowly and then they often are missing something that everybody was hoping it would have. Okay. I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, and I think you probably planted this seed in my head, but I just feel like, yeah, 
ever since you did that, uh, when you ran those tests, I, I think, was it the Alexa or the Red? Which one you put next yeah, to that, your that's CT? Yeah, the Alexa. Okay. And I'm just seeing these images and I'm like, oh, but these are cinema level cameras. This is great. And obviously I don't expect like, I don't expect any of my mirrorless cameras to do the things that uh, a C200 can do, much less like a full-fledged uh, cinema box. But looking around at like other options like the GH5, and, and let me just stress, I'm talking specifically about video, not hybrid shooting, not photos, right, right. just strictly videos. It just seems that for the amount of investment that we put into the Sony, there are more capable, way cheaper options. It's almost like the the argument of should you stay in Mac or should you go to PC when like the PC that is just as powerful as the same Mac is like a third the cost, you know? So, and is this because of the body or because the lenses are getting so expensive? I mean, it's because of the lenses, but... Yeah. I think all of the mirrorless cameras that have higher specs than the a7 III are all cheaper. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a problem. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm definitely constantly in a state of flux lately. I, I don't... I was. I used to be settled for a while. I, I Definitely in 5D Mark III times, I was like, yeah, this is great. Um, and now I feel less stable and, sh- and certain. But what's the, what's the source of your instability? That... Uh, okay, for one thing, having moved to a bigger camera with the C200, there that presents all sorts of workflow things that I just haven't solved yet that I don't know how I'm going to deal with, uh, like camera stability. You know, now my tripods aren't really good enough anymore. Uh, it means that I can't put that on the gimbal, so now I'm floating uh, the you know lesser cameras on the gimbal, which can work fine, but. Um, all of this is just, and also moving between two brands, that's been a big source of it for a while now, actually. Ever, I guess th- that goes back to being on the, the 5D and the A7 series is having two sets of lenses, two different sci- color sciences to try to match. That stuff isn't, isn't great to work with. Yeah. Okay, but let's, let's circle back to the 6600 a bit because there's a lot of good things to be said here. This, this really feels like a pretty awesome investment for a lot of people. It's 1400 U.S., uh, the battery is the same as the A7 III and A7R three and everything else now. It's the Z series. So way bigger battery, double the battery life on, on this camera, which is huge. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad they did this on the A7 as well because it really needed it. And I've been happy with it since it changed. So that's a big change. Um, it's got a tiltier screen now, so you can do vlogging setup if you find somewhere to put your mic other than in front of it, uh, added a headphone jack, and it is, uh, it's also the, the same sensor as the, uh, wait, what is the same, I wrote same sensor here, but now I don't remember what is the same sensor as. It's the Bion's X, I think, right? Meaning it's the same as the A6100? Oh, no, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the stabilization. Uh, oof, oof, I, I think, oof. I think that both the A6100 and 6600 have the same sensor, which is, that's more of a plus for the 6100, because it's like half the price but am I right about that? Okay, forget all the sensor stuff I said. I'm, that I might be, I might have taken the wrong notes on that. Um, it's the same as the oh, A65. That's a, what it, it is. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it is. So that's that's more of a downside. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna update my notes so I don't uh, make the same mistake. <laughs> uh, but yeah, then uh, then that brings us to A6100, which seems like a pretty awesome deal. It it gets to that thing of that I have a hard time recommending the lesser version of anything, but it is way cheaper. 
750 bucks. It has a lot of the same features as the uh, A6600. Uh, the EVF is a little bit worse and it has the old battery, so it doesn't have that same life, but it does shoot 4K, has that same tilty screen. Um, and I, I, th- I think it could make a lot of sense for average people to go here. I know the A6000 was the top selling camera for Sony for a long time. And mm-hmm. now that this is just a much more capable, lower end option, uh, I think I think it's a it's great that it's out there because people are going to buy this. I'm curious as to I read somewhere that they were bundling that with the 50 millimeter, and I think that's just the kind of it's kind of a an interesting choice to bundle with an APS-C mm-hmm. sensor. Yeah, that's, to have something that. Yeah, I'd rather them like be bundling it with. Um, Things like the well on the Canon side, there's the EFS twenty eight pan or twenty four millimeter pancake lens, for example. Like yeah. that's the kind of thing I think would be great. It's like a very compact, relatively fast, slightly wider lens because fifty millimeters is too close for normal people. I think, but I mean, yeah, at that point you're just shooting portraits. It's not, I yeah, mean, it's not a lot of flexibility, especially indoors. But yeah. Hey. Yeah, I think that's a challenging thing for a lot of people to realize. Like, it's a bit of a wake-up call when everybody tells them, just buy a nifty 50 with your new camera. It's like, oh, wait, you uh, that's actually an 85 millimeter. Um, but yeah, and then, and then one more thing that um, the A61 also has inherited the color science of all the other modern Sonys, which got better from before. It's still not everybody's favorite, but the the JPEGs will come out a little nicer straight out of camera, so... So I'm told. I haven't tried these yet, but I will be soon. We uh, we are going to a, a Sony thing where I'll, I'll be able to play with all of this stuff very soon, and then I can give much more detailed information about it. Yeah, I mean, they don't, with the 6000 series, like I was saying earlier, I mean, they don't usually get those wrong. I mean, it's some simplified setups. It's a little less complicated to operate than the A7 series for sure. It's way lighter. Um, I mean, you kind of run into a problem if you're going to put like, if you're thinking to put G Master lenses on there, but you don't buy that kind of camera for that kind of combination usually. Well, and we have all these lighter gimbals coming out now too. Uh, the I know you ordered a Ronin SC. Did you get one? Did you use one yet? I yeah, I've been shooting that paired with the old Ronin S on the two Fujis. Yeah. Um, no arm fatigue whatsoever on the SC. Yeah, that's exciting. But the SC can handle. A decent amount. There's also the uh, Crane M2. Am I getting that name right? Uh, from Zion. That uh, it. So it takes the uh, like it handles a little less. It's more meant for like point and shoots or your phone. But something in between what the Osmo used to do and what the um, SC is meant for. So there's there's just like more and more options out there. And it's, I think that with my C200, it can be frustrating because I can't put it on a gimbal, but it can make sense to have a separate gimbal camera that you just pick up and like, that's what you're using. And that can be okay because the quality can still be amazing if uh, you are matching, say, wide gimbal shots with uh, close-ups that might be on a tripod or something. So Yeah, I had a, I have a cinematographer friend who DP'd for me on a commercial shoot uh, last year. And he was telling me that especially when it comes to on projects he's worked with when delivering to the client in HD is like the standard option. What he'll do is break out from like his F7 or his C200 
And for really dynamic shots, he had this little pocket Osmo that, I mean, did not produce a very nice image. But he's like, when you stick it in a cut for just a second or two seconds, something like really quick, um, just to sort of let your segments breathe, that the clients always really wanted more of those shots. And sure enough, on our shoot, when we did that, those were like all of the select shots that they pulled. And they're like, can we have more of this? It's like, well, no, but. (laughs) And it's gotten better. I mean, like the Osmo was the only option for a while. But now, like I was saying with that Crane M2, you could put the Sony, uh, what's called the RX100 Mark VII. That's got like a decent size sensor, amazing image quality. And uh, or, or the, I mean, yeah, there's lots of options now. So. It's an exciting time to be moving cameras. This episode is brought to you by Spark Camera, my favorite way to quickly edit videos on my iPhone. I'm sure by now you've heard me either talk about making my Instagram stories using this incredibly simple app, or you've seen me do it because I post them pretty regularly. It's a way that you can just press to record and let go and it stops recording. And then you move some simple sliders around to create a very quick and simple edit right there on your iPhone. Look, we all know there's times where you need to carefully go in and sculpt every single detail of your edit. But there's other times where you can just shoot for the edit as you are there in reality and not even really get distracted from what's going on around you because it's so intuitive to just keep shooting and editing and shooting and editing. And before you know it, the project is done and you don't even realize you got started. Spark Camera is incredibly easy to use. I did a YouTube video about how to use it if you want to know more. But the best part is that it just starts to knock down the barriers as you want to get creative. You don't have that resistance of, ah, will I have time to edit this later? No, you can just shoot and edit it now, and the whole thing is done. So if you want to learn more, go to sparkcamera.com slash Stallman, or click the link in the show notes. Thanks again to Spark Camera for supporting the show. Let's also make sure we hit these Sony lenses because I think the 16 to 55 millimeter 2.8 is really exciting. I think it's an awesome announcement. Apparently, it's not very heavy. It's pretty lightweight. I think a lot of vloggers and running gun people are going to be using it. Uh, What do you think? Are you going to get one? That one I am going to get because I think uh, the Sigma that you're always raving about I don't think they make that in a Sony mount. Not yet. Somehow. I don't, I don't know how it <laughs> still hasn't happened. But I feel like they've actually slowed down on their Sony mount productions. There's not like a lot coming out from Sigma for Sony. But I mean, just the weight of that particular lens is really nice when, I mean, we have essentially two options, right? You've got the 224 70s that are like the main options. One is F4 and the picture is eh. And you've got the 2.8, which is really nice, but mm-hmm. it's super heavy. Mm-hmm. So having something like this, I'm wondering with them, with Sony really like ramping up their their 6,000 line and like I was saying earlier, these, these non-Zeiss lenses, like it seems like they're trying to make a specific market play. I don't really know what exactly that market play is yet, but it's really interesting like that they're like, hey, we have all these like really light lenses now and we have like even smaller cameras that are almost as good as like the a7 III. And, yeah. I mean, it's something that Canon is totally blowing. So they are definitely scooping that. Um, Canon, you know, with their, well, we'll get to the Canon announcement soon, but with the R series, the lenses have gotten enormous and incredibly heavy, even as the bodies get smaller. So I think it may just be trying to fill in that opposite end of the market that 
Canada's just leaving. I mean, this is Sony's classic move for the last few years. Whatever Canon's leaving on the table, they will gladly scoop it up. So, and and that lens specifically with the sixteen to fifty five, like I think that's the one lens that I've been the most excited about in a long time. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really golden YouTuber combo. I think a lot of video or just I mean videographers in general, like I I could totally imagine using this for a lot of things. Um, yeah, it's going to be good. And there's also the 70 to 300, 4.5 to 6.3, which I don't really care about, but I thought I'd mention it. Uh, variable apertures just drive me crazy. 4.5 is is kind of too slow for me. So I am firmly in the camp of I cannot buy a Zoom that has a variable aperture. I just won't yeah. do it, yeah. ever. Yeah. Normal people, if you like that, that's fine. You can go buy it. <laughs> uh, I had an, like a, a really long Zoom when I was first getting started. I had like a Tamron back when Tamrons were worse. And it was something very similar to this, uh, this kind of range. And it took me a while to realize why. It was, a le- it was a learning period of like, oh, that's why a variable aperture is frustrating. But uh, I don't know. Even going back to the price point, though, I mean, if we're spending over $1,000 for a lens, right? Like, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to buy a lens that won't allow you to shoot, let's say, at least into sunset. Yeah, anything, anything, basically above f four. I just am not going to think about it anymore. But so we've already given it too much time. Let's talk about the Canon ninety D. And at, okay, at first glance, I saw this announcement. And was like, this is great. This is really exciting. There's a lot of good things going on with the ninety D. It's you know a replacement for the eighty D, which lasted a very long time and was very popular, especially. For video, like uh, Casey Neistat used it forever, which is why I think a lot of YouTubers used it forever. It uh, it was like the best camera with a flip screen um, for a while. They updated the sensor, great new sensor, 32.5 megapixels, shoots 4K with no crop, which is uh, something that's a surprise for Canon. I mean, Sony, we take it for granted. In the Canon world, they had been pretty bad about crops, so that's uh, good news. Uh, the, the, okay, the big disappointment, let's get straight to that and why I was let down, and this may not matter for you, is for some unjustified reason, no good reason, it does not shoot 24 frames per second video, which, okay, you don't need that. Especially A lot of people, they're like, okay, if this is my whole vlogging setup, you don't need to shoot a vlog in 24. That's not important. But if I were to consider this camera, which I had sort of been thinking about, I'm like, okay, maybe this could be my running gun uh, vlogging selfie cam because I don't have anything with a flip screen right now and that's frustrating. But once I saw no 24p, that means I have to switch everything else to 30 and I don't really want to. I would rather shoot in 24 and I don't want to be changing all my other cameras because this one for no reason doesn't support 24 frames per second. So I think there are probably way more people out there than you you think who just shoot 30p and then downsample the 24p on the export. Yeah, I bet you it happens more than you think. I mean, I I know a lot of people do, or people shoot in 30, and I don't notice it, and it doesn't bother me. Like it's not that 30 is so bad. It's mostly that I am shooting 24 right now. Sometimes, especially on like a commercial job that I worked hard on, and I think the cinematography turned out really well. I want it to be 24. I don't want that to be 30 because then I can see the difference. And yeah. I don't want to have any cameras that just can't work within that. That would that would frustrate me. I, I'm with you in that I wouldn't get it either <laughs> if yeah. it doesn't shoot if it doesn't give me that option. Yeah. Um, it's just so arbitrary. But I, yeah, I was just thinking just for the masses. I think we're in the we're in the sort of 
camp of people who really care about that, but I think we're probably a minority. Yeah. And these, this is a pretty good mass camera, and, and so is the other one, which we're going to talk about, the M6 II. Uh, they share a lot of things in common, so as we go through this, a lot of it is similar. Um, but I know also on the 90D, it is also weather-sealed, which I don't think the ADD really was. Like The ADD always felt a little flimsy, uh, shoots 10 frames per second. It brings all of the face and eye detect tracking to the dual pixel IF, which is great. I mean, both Canon and Nikon, or sorry, Canon, <laughs> sorry, Nikon, Canon and Sony are doing a great job of their, all their digital tracking stuff. And, uh, you know, I think they're always kind of racing with each other to do it a little bit better. But having it come to this lower priced Canon is pretty great. Um, then there's the M6 II. It is the exact same sensor. It has all of that same focusing stuff. Um, but it is even less ideal for video shooters because it doesn't have a headphone jack. Um, that one detail makes a really big difference. It means that, I mean, you can shoot without a headphone jack and it can turn out fine. But if the results are important, if they are mission critical and you are delivering something to a client, you need to you need to be able to monitor. You need to be able to check, like, did the, did the audio even record? Was there interference? Was there noise? Whatever. Um, so it, it can be a bit of a deal breaker for video. But for photography, this thing is pretty awesome. It's really small. Um, it has this crazy 30 frames per second raw burst mode where you, I, I, I think you just, like, press the button once and all of a sudden it, you get 30 FPS of raw, which is actually incredible. I don't know how it does that. Yeah. Uh, and is that is not on the 90D. So I have one question for you about the 90D. Mm-hmm. So given the fact that its price point is not that much cheaper than the EOS R, like if you sit these two cameras on on the shelf next to each other and let's say that $2000 isn't an option, but maybe you're looking to save some money. What is it about the 90D that you would think people would find more attractive than they are? Uh, the price <laughs> for sure. Um, I think there's some people that just like the comfort of, of DSLRs as well that, uh, I th- there are definitely people out there that aren't quite ready to make the jump, which Canon obviously seems to be banking on far too much. Cause I think we're all going to be switching <laughs> to, uh, mirrorless entirely pretty soon. So this is probably one of the last great DSLRs that Canon's going to do, I imagine. I mean, it, it also just is a really big price difference, I think, for a lot of people. Like, that, that is the difference between buying a kit and having absolutely nothing. I think if you have the money available, the art just makes more sense. It, there, there's also the fact that, okay, you're not going to be adapting your glass because you can use anything EF or EFS on the 90D, so you, you, you don't have to stick an adapter in between. So keep that in mind with the price of the R you kind of need to include the adapter in the price to get the exact same thing. So then you're adding a few hundred more dollars. I did not know that. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. That right Otherwise there Otherwise you're buying our glass, which there are a lot less of, and a lot of them are more expensive as well. So Okay. And I'll also add that that's a reason to consider not getting the M6 too as well. Uh, it's just less glass options and probably less future lens support. Not that they're going to drop it, I'm sure. It, they announced a new camera. There'll probably be new lenses at some point, but it's not where their focus is at all on the M series glass. So that would be a reason for me not to consider it as well. If they don't have exactly the lens that you want already released, don't count on future releases uh, catching that up. And you you can adapt on that one as well, but then you're kind of losing some of the appeal of having such a small camera. And I would I would add that I think this is the one place where. Sony has actually just excelled for its entire existence 
you know, for cameras of that body size class. Um, they're just really good at making like really great cameras with at least all of the lens options you need for a camera that size. Yeah. So if I was looking at something here, I, I would just go straight to the Sony or the Fuji, but. Well, ex- except for usability. I mean, so that's the thing. I think if you're a really, you're a user that just, you're a photographer that just wants to be comfortable and you don't want to get really advanced. And I bet they are not listening because this is way too technical for this kind of person. (laughs) uh, And they would have been bored already. But if you're the kind of person that you don't want to be thinking about your camera so much, you just want it to work and take good photos for you. um, You know, that that can still be the reason to go to Canon instead of Sony or Fuji, maybe. (laughs) But, um, But other than that, I mean, if you really care about performance, I think that more, for the most part, the... A6600 kind of comes out on top of, of either of these. Um, and then the other news item I had here was the new RF lenses from Canon. Uh, I haven't like gone in depth about them. I haven't tried them. I just wanted to acknowledge that they exist. And we have now rounded out the zoom lens lineup for the RF series. We have the 15 to 35 millimeter 2.8 and the 24 to 70 millimeter 2.8, the two uh, very normal lenses that you would expect. Um, the 70 to 200, I think, hasn't been, uh, I don't think it's, it's not in stores and stuff yet. I don't know when it's coming. They've released screenshots and stuff of it, and it looks awesome. Have you looked, have you looked at that, the new 7200? I've seen them, but I don't, so with the RF lenses particular, because I'm not a Canon person, what mount is that? Like, what mount, what camera bodies are? That's the R. <laughs> the oh, R, the that R is the for RP. the R. Yeah, so R, that's okay. the native class for it. And that was the thing before is you couldn't really get all of the options that you'd expect. And they, they are trickling out now. Um, and they're apparently amazing. I haven't shot a project with them. I've just kind of played with them. But it is, it's important that they exist at this point. Everybody tells me they're great, so that's good. Yeah, it, for those two, especially the 2470, I mean... Every every camera mount should have a twenty four seventy two point eight. I feel like yeah, it's kind of weird that they did the twenty eight to seventy two point zero first. Have you have you ever taken a look at that? I haven't seen the it photos. It is so big. I would never want to travel with it, but the results are great. So I don't know. And now let's move on a bit to a topic that you had suggested. We'll start with the basics of it before we get to to your specific element of it. A, a, a broad area, just talking in general about the idea of shooting raw because it's not something that I've really addressed here. Um, we'll, we'll keep it non-controversial at first uh, for any listeners that maybe currently shoot JPEG and are considering shooting raw and are wondering what the reasons that you might use one or the other are. And I, I believe that what you're going to want to address later is that maybe there are some mis- misconceptions or, um, I don't know, I won't put words in your mouth, but uh, we'll, we'll get to the, the mildly controversial part after. Starting with the basics. The difference between RAW and uh, any compressed format. For one thing, first, a a very common mistake. A lot of people type RAW as all caps, R-A-W, all capitalized. It is not an acronym. It does not stand for anything. It is just a word. It means RAW. The word word RAW is what it means in photography. It is just unprocessed. It is uh, uncooked, you know, raw meat. You don't capitalize R-A-W unless you want to be really dramatic about it for no reason. There is... A bunch of potential that can be extracted out of it depending on the camera. So that's that's the first thing that I didn't fully understand when I I, th- I think I tried shooting raw on a Rebel in you know 2004 or whatever, and I was like, I'm going to try shooting raw because that's what pros do, and it's going to give me all of the quality that you possibly can have. But then I realized, 
Oh, wait, it still depends on your camera. Even if you're shooting raw, there is a different amount of dynamic range, different noise levels, all this stuff. It doesn't just open up infinite potential to start shooting raw. It just gives you some kinds of flexibility that can be really useful. So, um, I mean, for me, one of the main reasons that I shoot raw a lot of the time is because if you're in an uncontrolled environment, especially a changing environment like an event, the white balance is basically, okay, well, with with some exceptions, kind of infinitely flexible so that if the temperature of the light gets really warm and you go inside in the evening, um, you can get that back to looking not so warm, not so yellow, and fix that to look more or less neutral. The limits are that you can't go infinitely far. If the light starts getting actually red, you can start clipping the color channels and you can't necessarily recover it as far as you want to to either side. It can also just start to kind of distort the color or like lose some color detail if you go too far to either the warm and cool. But for the most part, you have very few consequences as you move between, say, you know, 3100, 3200 Kelvin and say 5600 Kelvin, which are generally tungsten and daylight. Um, how am I doing so far? Have I have I stepped into anything <laughs> that you would disagree with? I would 1000% agree with everything you've just said. Okay, great. Do you have any more basics to add? You no, know, I, I think I think the thing that you you said when you started off your explanation, I mean, shooting raw is it has become the requisite for all working photographers, like not just a few of us that like all of us who shoot for a living have to shoot raw, right? I will note an, an interesting exception is in the world of uh, Aerie Alexas that it's really common to just shoot those in ProRes. Um, a lot of people don't shoot them in RAW, which interesting. But uh, in terms of um, red, that does not happen. Everybody shoots RAW on red. So mm. <laughs> basically, because the, it, it seems to be, I mean, I don't shoot either of these cameras, but it seems to be because the color is just so damn good coming out of the Alexa that. Nobody needs to push it as far, and there's a you're shooting at like ProRes 444, which is really you know HQ or whatever, really high bit rates. There's tons of data there. You can still move it around a lot. I think this would be a good test case that we should probably talk to operators of those cameras who take uh, take images off, like how much post work they're doing. Because I I'm just thinking about a difference, like one fundamental difference between using a camera at that level versus let's say hybrid shooters running around with their with their Sony's and and Canons is that usually especially on like bigger productions nobody's really taking any chances with the actual capture of the image mm-hmm. especially in video or in like in film it, you know there's this old adage that used to be said in the photographer and cinema in photography and cinema world that doesn't really get said anymore which is like get it right in the camera, right? <laughs> Before we started saying fix it in post? Exactly. So I'm wondering if, you know, capturing off ProRes off of that camera, is is it just because there is still like that level of information that can be pushed? Or is it because once they've set, let's say the camera for whatever they're filming on set, the lighting, everything is already right and the exposure is where they want it to be. So I would imagine, it's a very ignorant thing for me to say, but I would imagine that, the stills coming out of the camera at that point don't really need to be changed that much. That is that is an in element for sure. Um, and I know often they will still shoot raw when there's a lot of VFX involved. Mm-hmm. That is 
kind of universal. If there's going to be like, if you're shooting green screen, I think they basically always still shoot raw, but you kind of, you're, you're more or less right. I do know that there, there's a lot of flexibility in that ProRes. So I think it, I think it even could be pushed like from, you know, tungsten to daylight and you're not really running into issues because the bit rate is still very high. Um, but anyway, I, I also feel like I'm speaking a little beyond my knowledge. This is only something that ha- it, it's funny that in the cinema world, there can be these big differences. Whereas in photography, it's like cameras shoot JPEG and raw and that's it. There's no in between <laughs> format, you know? So a lot of the stuff you just don't have to deal with in photography. And it's things that I'm still learning and, and trying to get better at as I try to up my video game, my, my, my video game gradually. Um, a few other little basics I can think of, though. Uh, one thing is you also have to be aware that you are a lot more responsible for having a nice final look of the image if you're shooting raw. Um, if you shoot JPEG, the camera is going to have some intelligence about the here's what colors look like when they come out of me, the camera. I know how to deal with them and make them look good. And if you shoot raw and then try to just insert it into another application, you're counting on that program to know how to interpret the original raw data and and make it look good. So for example, in Adobe, we have the Adobe Raw Engine that has camera profiles for all these different things. So for example, if you buy a brand new camera that was just released, but don't update your Lightroom fast enough, sometimes it doesn't know how to read the raw files. That's I've run into that a couple of times. So you have to mm-hmm. stay updated because the software needs to no, they have to get information from the camera camera manufacturer. Here's how our raw works on this camera. And then uh, Adobe does work to make it come out right. And it's actually different for each camera. So with Fuji raw files, I know because of the way that they do anti-aliasing, like there's no anti-aliasing filter. I think that's the reason that sharpening can cause issues. I don't know. Camera t- uh, Cameron talked about this on the or older cameras or whatever podcasts. But I know that sharpening in Lightroom can kind of mess up raw Fuji files, which is interesting. But just an example of that, you can screw it up. And I especially noticed this with uh, iPhone photos. So it's part of the reason I don't shoot raw iPhone photos very often is because I find that most apps that can handle raw don't know how to bring the best information out of iPhone raw files. And if you don't deal with them correctly, you can end up making them look worse than the JPEG did. So oh, so this is the part where I, I get to say, like, Tyler, I have notes. Okay, great. <laughs> we can jump into... So hopefully all that made sense. Now, Simbrush, tell us, uh, what do we not understand about RAW or how we're using it wrong? Okay, so I don't think people are necessarily using RAW wrong. But I do know that, you know, obviously over the course of the past, I don't know, going on nine years that I've been shooting... I started in the place where in the fashion world, most photographers weren't shooting raw. And then as the technology started to get better, a few of us started shooting raw and then everyone else caught up and started shooting raw to the point where just about everyone shoots raw all the time. It's sort of like one of these conceptions that it's just the thing that we do, right? To clarify, like I shoot raw in photos I think 100% of the time, um, I'll shoot JPEGs as my backup. So I'll, uh, on the 5D, I'll usually have the SD card um, writing full-size RAWs to it. And then I will let the uh, CF card have large JPEGs. And that's what I use as a backup. Okay. 
there's a couple of things that have sort of happened over the course of the 10 years with the the past 10 years with digital photography that I think everyone sort of overlooks. Not everyone, 95% of us. And we just spent an hour talking about all of like the leaps in technology that all of these camera makers are putting out in their new models, right? The thing that we never, ever talk about are the leaps in JPEG processing. That's very true. I feel like this is this is just me standing on a hill with my own little flag. I feel like every photographer assumes that the JPEG technology that exists in their current cameras, they were bought in the last two years, three years, has the same JPEG rendering technology that cameras 10 years ago had. And that is just simply not the case. So one thing that I, I want to just go straight to in sort of my argument for why people should at least consider the idea of putting some JPEG back into their workflow. It's sort of a no-brainer. It's space, right? For people, I'm going to talk to like your audience, those of you who shoot for clients. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's who we're listening. That's who's listening. So better than talking <laughs> to another you, audience. <laughs> talking in the space. So for those of you who shoot for uh, clients where most all of the information will exist on Instagram. It's probably like a really easy place to start. In mobile environments, right? We sort of have come to this place where we, we said this whole past Christmas season, I know you put out videos about it, raving about the cameras on the iPhone, right? And that now the iPhones are taking photos that almost are as good as our mirrorless cameras. Yeah, depending on the metrics, they in some ways can be a little bit better, mostly worse, but a little bit better in some tiny ways. My argument is, in support of that statement, that most of a consumer audience won't tell the difference, won't be able to tell the difference, especially when it's delivered, like, on the phone. Like, most people won't be able to tell an iPhone image Let's assume that the conditions are right, that the, let's say you're taking a photo of Anya during the day on the street or standing in front of like some really marvelous <laughs> mountain, right? You take a photo on your iPhone in JPEG and then you take a photo on your Canon or on your Sony in RAW and you doctor up both of the images you put them next to each other, not ne- necessarily next to each other, but let's say you put them up one day after the other. I don't think your audience is going to be like, oh, this is a serious drop in quality from yesterday. The rub is the photo that you took on the iPhone is strictly JPEG with a much smaller sensor than what your mirrorless camera uh, can bring to the table. Yeah, of course. Okay. Well, And by the way, we'll probably agree on like 85% of what you're going to say, so that's fine. One of the things that I've sort of been thinking about in the past few years, especially as most of my workflow on photo has moved over to analog film, right, is this idea of shooting a job, not a large-scale commercial job where there's a lot of money involved and a lot of stakes, but, you know, let's say jobs that pay, I don't want to give a price point, but smaller end jobs, right? We shoot these jobs, we spend a few hours on set shooting the jobs, we go home, we might spend a few hours, two, three hours minimum 
working on the images, right? Uh, the raw images, getting them ready for post. Whereas if we know how to use our cameras, right? If we know how to be good photographers, we could, in a lot of these instances, just take the photos on JPEG, bring them home, and they're just about ready to go. Yes. Okay. My follow-up question, which is what sort of sparked this whole thing offline for us, is why doesn't anyone do it <laughs> besides me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So I I totally take your point. Um, and it, here, so here's another like misconception I think is worth clearing up. But even people that actually work in photography that may not fully understand is there the, the things about JPEG that you're giving up typically aren't in the visible image quality. So, for example, I mean, we always deliver in JPEG. We never deliver TIFFs. And even even when clients ask for it, usually we just send them JPEGs anyway, and they usually don't complain. I think the idea of requiring TIFFs is an old school thing. I don't really, I don't even actually know why it caught on. I know that it was a big part, or, or PSDs or whatever, like some kind of barely compressed format. The only reason. Well, let me jump. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just going to jump in to answer that. I, I think it also had to just do with the fact that the JPEG compressions back then just weren't very good. I mean, yeah, things did be. not hold up, and it was really hard to edit JPEGs back then. Right. It, I don't think that's the case now, but continue. And uh, so, yeah, now we're at this place where when you save something as a JPEG, and also let's remember, we're talking about very minimally compressed JPEGs. I mean, when I export JPEGs to as masters to deliver to a client, they are they're always at a hundred percent compression. Mm-hmm. They're already small enough that there's no reason for us to compress them further. Or if we save out of Photoshop, they're at twelve. I don't know why the scale is out of twelve. But we just don't compress them at all. Like leave them as big as they can be. The things that start to show up with JPEG is when you start to save it over and over. So you'll lose that flexibility of, you know, if you want to edit it and then edit it again, if there's any chance there will be further editing, that's a good reason to go to TIFF or PSD or some kind of closer lossless or close to lossless format um, because each of those further edits, you'll need to recompress the file. Uh, Ideally, you're only compressing the file once or maybe twice but after that, you can start to see artifacting eventually, uh, depending on you know how much you're compressing the file, how big it is. But the visible, like the visible thing of if you were to just print off a you know thirty megapixel PSD and a thirty megapixel JPEG, that difference is invisible. Nobody will see that difference. Uh, it is only if you're going to edit it further than it starts to matter. Are we, are we on the same page about that? We are on the same page. Yeah. And just to sort of piggyback on what you're saying, just so no one misunderstands, I guess, my position. Like, I was saying there are certain jobs where it just makes sense and it is the sensical thing to do to shoot in RAW. If you're doing any sort of beauty work, if you're doing work that you know is going to be displayed in a large format, for instance, a billboard or or I don't know, something like that. Anything where you know there's going to be a lot of retouching involved or in the case of what we were talking about with the Ari uh, uh, example, if you're taking image, if you're taking photos where you know that you're going to transform an image into something else, right? Those instances, it totally makes sense to shoot on raw. But I then wonder if we're shooting a party, if we're shooting a reception, if we're doing uh, most 
types of street photography. We just put everything in raw because that's the thing that everyone else does. But see, and, those are actually times that I'm even more inclined to shoot raw, especially event stuff. And it's because I don't have time to dial it in because things are moving quickly. I probably don't have control of the lights. My white balance, you know, so let's say I'm shooting indoors and I set my white balance to 3200 because that kind of felt right when it started. But then as it gets a little darker in the evening, I get home and realize that, oh, the lights are actually like 2700. They are very, you know, darker red and I have to make an adjustment. And that, that white balance fix, that can make a JPEG fall apart pretty quickly. Absolutely. I'm, I was meaning, sorry, I was just sticking with my example of daylight. I'm only talking about daylight situation. Okay, okay. So obviously like uh, in the evening indoors, uh, especially when you're starting to get mixes of different types of like indoor lights, like uh, it just doesn't make sense to to shoot that kind of stuff in JPEG if you're not going to have sort of the flexibility. But I, I mean like, I'm just thinking like outside, like on a Sunday, summer day, right? Well, and so the thing that I'll do that is like this, uh, the thing that I already, y- you'll agree with, is that often I will switch to medium raw instead of JPEG. That has its own compromises, but it's less megapixels, safe space. And it's, I come to it through the same philosophy of like, this is only ever going to go on Instagram. I'm never going to use the extra resolution here. I just want my files to be bigger or sorry, smaller. (laughs) I say everything backwards. Um, You know, it's just like to save space, to make things move more quickly. But unfortunately, the trade-off with medium raw, for one, a lot of Sonys don't do it. But on Canon, you're also giving up some dynamic range that is noticeable. You can see it. You can Super 35 the Sony oh, and yes. put it in crop mode, but it's not. I, I I argue I would argue that the J the full frame JPEG, assuming that the Sony you're using is the full frame, I would argue that the JPEG full frame looks better than the. That is that's probably the, true. The cut yeah, raw. yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I don't really I don't do that unless I'm using a cropped lens on a full frame camera, um, which I don't do that often. But <laughs> okay, okay, wait. But so here's the, here's the other reason is there are times that I, there's a lot of times actually, that I really push the um, exposure recovery sliders, the highlight, and especially, or especially the highlights, and to some extent the shadows, uh, which here's a little tip. I meant to, I'm going to talk about this somewhere sometime. You're probably going to get a better response in the highlights by bringing the highlight slider down than bringing the shadow slider up. That looks more like HDR. Highlights down looks less like HDR. But I can, the, from my experience, which I guess I don't play around with the menus enough, I don't have, I don't seem to have as much of that flexibility in the way I set up my RAWs, or sorry, the way I set up my JPEGs coming out of the camera. So that if I decide like, oh, wait, the I, I want to bring those shadows up way more. I want to just flatten out this image and have a little more compressed dynamic range. I, I don't seem to have that same flexibility with uh, in-camera JPEGs. That's fair. And and I think that if if I'm going to, if I arrive on a job and I'm taking some test images, like we usually know right away before the job actually begins if the photos that we're taking are going to re- require like a lot of post like fidgeting. Yeah, for we, sure. We usually know. Our intuition is pretty good in that. So what I'm saying simply is I feel like we're sort of ignoring that other part of our intuition where we show up and we you know, you, you take your test frames and you, it looks exactly the way that you want it to look. And you know, for this particular job, right, it would be fine. You probably, you're probably just going to go home 
pick your selects, maybe do one or two tweaks here, but like it's going to get ripped out and sent to your client, right? There's such a space difference and there's such a time difference in getting that raw to effectively look like what the JPEG, like the camera is going to give you as a JPEG out of the camera. I just sort of challenge you and anyone listening, if you have a newer camera, you know, wherever the light conditions are good for things that you normally shoot, just give it a shot. Like, make sure that, of course, you're taking the, the, the right kind of photo. Like, it's not going to save you the way that, that shooting raw is going to save you if you make mistakes or if you are not paying attention to some of the finer exposure details. But if you are, I'm all about working faster with less space. I mean, we talk about getting equipment that doesn't weigh as much, right? We want to do everything faster and lighter. And for some reason, RAW is that one place where everyone is just sort of, I say everyone, we as a collective are just really content with this really heavy format that we probably don't need as much as we think we need. What I would really love to see is more flexibility on cameras. Because I totally take your point. I just, I don't have that many times that I feel confident enough to switch to JPEG. (laughs) But I mean, I would love to shoot more often in, say, things that work the way that uh, raw light works, which is the Adobe format. That's often what I'll end up doing actually is my final edits when they're totally done and delivered instead of keeping PSDs because PSDs are really big, way, way bigger than raw files. I mean, like a PSD with a bunch of layers can easily be a terabyte um, that happens. I don't hold on to ter- terabyte size PSDs for more than, you know, about a month after the project's done. So every once in a while, I'll go through all my edited photos in Lightroom and convert them all to compressed raw files. Uh, mm-hmm. Is it raw light? Is that the name that Adobe gives it? I'm a capture one guy. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, so you don't even have that option. <laughs> uh, but that's another problem with them is they are only compatible with Adobe products. Anyway, they make they flatten all the layers out but keep more quality than a JPEG, but a pretty decent file size. Anyway, I'd love to see something like that that was common to cameras where it's like, okay, it's not, it's not JPEG, it's not RAW, it's somewhere in between. Uh, like a great example is in the video world. You know, the new Blackmagic, so I was looking at the list of file format options and it's crazy. Like either it shoots in RAW, like RAW 6K, that's awesome. But you can also yep. shoot in uh, 4K ProRes and you can shoot in 1080 ProRes and 1080 H.264. And like there's this huge list of like 15 different ways you can shoot. And and like 2.6, 2.7K and 3.2K, whatever. Like that's great actually. Because so what you're talking about as well, I mean, a lot of people default to 4K when they are shooting video now. But I think there's a lot to be said for 1080. I don't think we need to be shooting in 4K nearly as often as we think we do. Um, But I do like to crop in a bit. So for me, a lot of the time, ideally, I would be at something like 2.5K, 2.7K, where I still have room to punch in a bit. I have a bit of flexibility in post, but I do not need all of 4K. Unfortunately, a lot of cameras don't offer that. Um, And what I'm saying is that I love to see photography offer some of that more flexibility as well. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Um, the, I guess the last thing that I'll just say about the the my confidence, at least shooting in JPEG, is you know it really just came from the like switching over to shooting film, where you know a lot of the things that I shoot in in on film, unless it's again unless it's a commercial job, like I don't get the highest resolution scans from the lab. 
Usually the JPEGs come back at a max four megabytes, right? So there's not much that I can do with the images that I get. So I, I have to know how to shoot in a way that I need to be happy with the result. Yeah, and yeah, for sure. Yes, shooting raw gives us all of this flexibility and a whole lot of crutch, but I'm sort of an advocate for people just being better photographers. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that is, I can completely get behind. <laughs> And yeah, I think I, I just, uh, even if you don't want to do it for your jobs, I don't like, please don't jump off of a cliff for the things that I'm saying, but, um, it's worth it to at least practice because if I think there's a whole lot of comfort in knowing as a photographer that you could shoot a job in JPEG if you wanted to. And if the day ever came that you really do need that time expedience or that space expedience, uh, you're not going to be worried because you know that you can execute no matter what format you're shooting on. And that's kind of just where I sit on it now. I like that. No, it's, I totally agree. And I think especially in terms of uh, everybody could learn a little by shooting film more often and appreciating what it means to get it right in camera. Keep it alive. Uh, Let's introduce a new segment, kind of, not really, but uh, in a way, because I want to start doing more questions on the podcast. It's usually something that I'll do a whole episode about. That might still happen at some point, but I want to more often bring in things that you guys ask because it uh, you do ask it, and sometimes I forget about it by the time the show comes around. So the way to do it so that I don't lose track and I can find your questions at any time and answer them on any episode is use the hashtag AskStullman on Twitter. This means you have to have a Twitter account, which... Um, I don't know, some of you may not. If you don't, uh, I, I don't know. You try to get a hold of me some other way, but I might lose it. The way that I'll definitely keep track of the questions because they all go into a big spreadsheet is hashtag ask Salman. And I just set this up right before we started recording. So I've got my very first uh, question coming in through that. Are you ready for it? Did you look at the hashtag before? I haven't seen it. All right. Well, you're, you're going to use it in the future, right? I mean, all the time, man. Oh, I feel, I've, hold on, hold on. I feel like I'm pretty active on, on your Twitter. Well, yeah, I, I'm, you're, pretty, I'm pretty good with engagement You're setting there. the standard. You're like, the, <laughs> everybody should be following your example. Uh, follow Lord Ashbury on Twitter and uh, learn how to do it right. But uh, this question comes from Colin. I'm a hobbyist photographer. I'm trying to decide between the 5D Mark IV, the 80 or 90D, and the EOS R. I have an old XTI with three lenses. Help. Oh, not being a Canon person, I have. That's true. Not that being a, not, oh, no, no, a handicap, but. But, but, but I have, I do have an opinion. I would probably, I would go with the Mark IV with the caveat that at some point I would probably have to switch systems. Like not out of Canon necessarily, but into like a more mirrorless setup. Um, the reason why I would say the Mark IV is Colin is talking about photography specifically. I think the Mark IV, for what it's worth, is still one of the best like photo machines on the market. I've rarely heard people complain about the camera. <laughs> um, all of my colleagues who shoot the Mark IV do beautiful work. I'm always a little bit skeptical when it comes to cameras that are touted as being able to do hybrid functions equally well, like uh, photo and video. And I'm like, well, let me see the photo and let me see the video first. But with the Mark IV specifically, it takes amazing uh, photos. I think, Tyler, you used the Mark IV, correct? Absolutely. Yep. And um, yeah, so the only only thing with the Mark IV is that it's getting a little bit old. 
Mm-hmm. So you're buying into an old system, which is always kind of just hard to recommend people do because you never know what's going to happen next week. You know, it could be replaced and then I you know, have a my foot in my mouth. And it's actually, it, I should generally disclaim as we start off a new Ask Stallman segment that if you ask me which camera to buy, a lot of the time I'm going to have to sell, well, it all depends on what you do. Because it, it really does. Giving out generic advice about what any person who, you know, I don't know Colin. I don't know what he shoots. I don't know how much he travels. Is he in studio? Is he shooting people? Is he shooting fruit in a basket? Is he, you know, there's a million different things that we all do with our cameras. And if you don't know a lot about what that person does, then any advice is slightly irresponsible. But, uh, you know, it's it's still fun to be irresponsible. So let's <laughs> let's try to give some advice. I, yeah, I love my 5D Mark IV still. I think it's great. A lot of the time, I've become more and more envious of anything with a flip screen. I'm just, I'm so used to it with the Sony. It feels like every camera really should have one right now. Mm-hmm. And when the Mark IV came out, that I was just starting to think that way. But now I'm more firmly in that camp that, yes, every camera should at least have a screen that lifts so that when you're shooting from a lower like waist level, you can look down and see it. That has become more and more important to me. That is... That is a lot of the reason that I look at the EOS R lately. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the EOS R also doesn't feel like it's there completely yet. Um, it is the first version of their mirrorless cameras. It's going to get a lot better. There are somebody was just showing me there. Like I was asking somebody that was shooting with it, that I'm like, "How do you like it?" And he's like, "Well." It is uh, slow to operate. And I was like, wait a minute. Nobody told me this. And he showed me around just adjusting aperture and shutter speed and stuff. And it seems to have some of that same lag that I see in the Sonys. And I that drives me so crazy. It's one of my biggest complaints about every Sony I've had is that, you know, the easiest way to see it is just take a photo and then try to change your aperture immediately after. There's lag. It doesn't just change right away. It has a delay where nothing happens, and then you see it all catch up. But in that time of waiting for it to catch up, you might move the dial a few more times, and then by the time it catches up, it's gone too far, and now you have to go back. Cameras should be immediately responsive to us. Any camera that is not responsive right now needs to get better. It is a a bigger problem than I think reviewers give it attention for, for being an issue. And so I was really disappointed to see that the ESR was doing that as well. I'll double down on that, like shooting at fashion week like if i'm shooting like on in the pit for a runway show that's the one place where the other photographers who have canons and nikons they kind of like look over at a sony users and just start <laughs> grinning because it's just right. like they've got the optical viewfinder and it just goes um is it I'm, still the case uh, like i haven't been in the fashion week pits for a while mm-hmm. but is everybody mostly still canon and nikon I, like last time i was there it really felt like Sony hadn't arrived yet. I was probably still the only person with the still, Sony yeah. this season. Yeah. yeah. It depends on it depends on what the environment is. So in the pit, most of them are still Nikon. I would say probably more Nikons than Canons just because of that legacy speed. And then when you're outside, uh it gets a little bit more democratic and I feel like backstage the old guys still have their legacy Canons uh, and all the new kids have Sony's. Wait, I have a pit question. This is a very insider. Yeah. Is it, it always seems like there's way more Italians than there really should be. Is that is that actually the case? Like the Italian fashion media can't be that big, but it is. <laughs> there's like always like 10 Italian photographers in there. There's more than that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what's the deal with that? I have a theory. 
and this is my very uneducated sort of theory, no proof to back this off. I don't want like uh, aggregators coming after me on Twitter or anything. But I think it has some relation to do with the whole like paparazzi. I think there's something about Italian press. I think there's something about Italian press where they just have the market. Like they had the market on it it. way back. But I'm talking like decades ago, like in the 60s and 70s when they were doing fashion shows that it was probably like the Italian press, quote unquote, that were shooting. And I think it's just like a generational thing. That was a little moment I noticed in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, There is something about a actor being in Italy at some point, and then they reference, they like, yeah, he loved the paparazzi. And this is happening in 1969 uh, when there wasn't really paparazzi here. Like, that, yes. I mean, it's an Italian word. It was happening there. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Celebrities would go to a restaurant and paparazzi would take photos of them. And it wasn't an American phenomenon. So maybe just that richer history of it. Okay. That's, very, that's, yeah, that's a just, much that's, more satisfying answer than I uh, thought we'd come to. And even if it's not true, I like it. I do know that the agencies, because, you know, like all these magazines buy all of those images from like just a few images or a few agencies that shoot on the runway. And most all of those outside of Getty and maybe Shudder, I believe the rest of them are pretty much all Italian. Wait, is Shutterstock a big presence at this? Okay, now I'm just getting more insider because this is interesting to me. But uh, like in the olden days, I couldn't imagine that. Shutterstock is like big in their news department these days. I mean, they're very present. I don't know how big they are, but okay. I mean, I mean, big I enough for me to mention. Just, <laughs> I just always still think of it as like Getty. Getty bought everyone, so Getty is everything. But I don't, I don't know if that's still the current state of things because I've been out of the stock world for a little while. Yeah. Wait, I, mean, I, I, I just remember yeah, Colin. Ahead. We totally didn't answer his question. No, 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 no. I'm. I. I hear okay. what you're saying about the EOSR, but I'm going to say to Colin, kind of what you were saying about your friend who demoed the camera. I don't know anyone yet who has raved about the photo capability on that camera. Yeah. A lot of people that love it are talking about video. Yeah. He's talking about photography. So at the end of the day, you said something like that was also really interesting. And I think this is also really important. And one of the things like when I shoot on film, all of my cameras are super old, right? So the latest tech doesn't matter When it comes to taking still photography, obviously we want ISO, we want speed out of our digital cameras. But aside from, and the color science, but Canon, you you can never go wrong. So aside from those three things and maybe ergonomics, which the Mark IV is also very good at from what I understand, like what else can that camera give you in the photo department that it isn't already giving you? The only downsides are lack of flip screen Mm -hmm. and the size... I'd say, in terms of stills, and that's about it. I mean, yeah, but I, I just mean in terms of the the inner, like under the yeah, hood, no, as far no, no. as I its mean, ability it's, to it's take amazing. a photo. Yeah, people will. I mean, I have to call attention to it because people will write in and complain. But like technically, there is a little bit more dynamic range in the Sony's, and when I shoot them side by side, I never see that difference. I think it's basically that Sony's are more ISO invariant. So if you shoot, like you could underexpose a Sony and shoot it at. ISO 100 and then drag it up to 1600 and the noise stays cleaner. Whereas in the Canon, you will, you, you can't shoot, you can't rate your ISO too far off from what you're going to use it. I mean, you can still make a big jump, but not as, as far. That's what the Sony can do a little bit better. That's not a really common use case. And that's, that's what the Sony's perform better in, in terms of dynamic range. 
But in normal shooting conditions, I don't think you notice. So I know a lot of people have strong opinions about the Sony's being way better. It is not a significant difference. I will not say that it's way better. I will say that Sony's image-taking qualities are so good that I've never needed to get another brand digital camera that's kind of photo. That's kind of the thing. <laughs> is like the, between this, these two sensors anyway, I mean, I'll, I'm sure also some of the modern Nikons, which are Sony sensors as well, um, nobody can tell the difference in the final photo. They are, they're all excellent, so don't worry about it. Um, but Colin, you, get, the, you, get the Mark IV. <laughs> yeah, I'd say get the, I mean, get the Mark IV if you, uh, if you, if you don't mind the budget. He, he said he has three lenses. He didn't say which ones he had, but I'm assuming, oh, I yeah. mean, that's another reason you Actually, don't have to true. get if off they're the all, system. But if they're all EFS lenses, that could be a reason to get a 90D. Anyway, we talked uh, about the 90D a lot. So it, 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 if you're doing photography, 90D looks pretty awesome. So uh, yeah, look at your lenses. I guess, I guess that's, that's about all I had though. Do you have anything else? I have notes, Tyler. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in knowing more stories that you're willing to share. Like one of the, one of the best things that I love about like you as a podcast host and when you speak to guests, I mean, obviously everyone who listens to you knows how much knowledge you have and how much of a passion you have for the things that you talk about. I mean, we just spanned, you know, two different manufacturers and specs and like this is all like Christmas Day every time something gets announced for you. That's how I feel. And I really love it. I'm also interested to know some of the things that you or maybe you and Anya had to go through like to get to the place where you guys are currently professionally. Like just just setting some time aside to just like story time with Tyler Stallman. Like, well, that's what story I Story time is a video that uh, Anya's been watching story time videos on YouTube and it's like, we should do story time. So I think you guys are on the same page. Uh, I like that idea. I also like the segment of the podcast where you say nice things about the podcast. So thanks, thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, All kinds of additions today. Huh? No, I think, that's, I think that's absolutely true. And if anybody is watching on Twitter, which uh, hopefully all of you are, uh, you know, I've been giving thought to exactly the format of the podcast, you might have even noticed that it was a little different than usual today. Um, you know, I'm not going to say anything about what I'm going to do before I do it. I will just keep thinking about it and making little tweaks here and there. But um, yeah, I will just say, you know, keep an eye on things. I uh, don't, I don't want it to get stagnant and just be one thing. So um, yeah, that's it. And uh, I guess follow me on Twitter if you want to know more about it. And follow Simbarash. Where, where are people going to find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I would say probably Instagram is the place to be because my Twitter, unless I'm talking to you, is mostly <laughs> just soccer and basketball. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Your Instagram stories are, are always surprisingly boring for me because you uh, like sports. But that's no, okay. that's only on Saturdays. That's okay. That Other is people only like sports on Saturdays. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, everybody click his uh, link in the show notes and check it out. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for having me.